0: To interview and inspiration, this is Marshall Paris and this
1: is Joshua Busio, and we're here today with Mr. Paul Snow. He's the CEO of Factum and the chair of Texas Bitcoin Conference. Thank you so much for being here today, and we're super excited for you to be on our show. Well, thank you for having me. I, it, I like I told you before uh, the
2: show. You guys uh, dress up really nice. We, we're used to audio podcasts where. Uh, dress isn't so important. Isn't exactly <laughs> mandatory. Not entirely <laughs> mandatory. I mean, you know, hopefully you wear clothes. You know? <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, this is a uh, really an experience, and glad to be
0: here. Absolutely. Honestly. And so there's one question that we always like to start out with, uh, kind of get, kind of a little bit fun, get to know you a little bit is. What's the most exciting, most memorable thing that you did whenever you were in your 20s? Well,
2: when you're in your 20s, uh, a lot of things happen. It's when you get out of the house, you, you get your first real world job, um, you get your uh, top secret clearance so that you can work behind the wall at Texas Instruments on things nobody else knows are really in existence. And you, dis- and you discover that top secret work is really, really, really boring. <laughs> it, it, they don't want to tell you anything you don't need to know, which means it's really boring. Um, uh, I ran away from that, went to graduate school, and got married, had uh, two of my four kids inside, the, uh, inside of my 20s, and uh, yeah, so tons and tons of interesting
1: things that I did during my, my 20s. 20s is a huge one for everyone yeah so just to get like more into the conversation uh can you tell our audience like a little bit about yourself so they get like a feel of who you are and like what you're working on now well uh that's a
2: big question uh i i'm probably the oldest significant developer in the blockchain space uh uh, tipping in in the late 50s Um, and uh, i i did a lot of work in compilers and embedded systems i i Did most of my development uh, in my early years in assembly language back in the days when people had to look at every single byte. I believe that a lot of that contributed to the designs of the systems I've made in the blockchain because again every byte really really matters in building these data structures and uh, it also gave me a lot of insight into how these things work together at a really really low level. Almost like assembly. The blockchain is much more like assembly than about any other application out there. Interesting. Um, I, like I said, I, I did start in that world. I, I wrote the first PostScript clone to actually ship in a commercial printer against Adobe's version of PostScript. Really? Yeah. And that, that ran for uh, six to seven years. We called it the software construction company. We were building software at the, the lowest levels. And we survived, but we didn't actually bring in all the capital and the investment that we needed to grow. And one of the big lessons to learn there is it just takes resources to build tech companies. The idea that people build tech companies from a garage with no input from anybody in terms of resources. well To a point that works, past that point, you've really got to get resources. Uh, I then wrote in the nineteen, well, in the two thousands. I did a bunch of other stuffs in the nineteen nineties, but in the two thousands, I wrote a rules engine for eligibility. We were talking about before the show, the problems around eligibility for health and human services in Texas. Uh, I got involved in building these rules engines to take the developer out of the problem of defining the rules for. Eligibility for Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, social security programs—all these, all these many many assistance programs that the state Um, administers—again into compilers and interpreters and and low-level stuff. When I got into the blockchain, though, it was very interesting because this is one where almost every project uses an interpreter because Satoshi Nakamoto used an interpreter and script inside of Bitcoin. This Mm. is this is the one place I don't think you need an interpreter, Um, (laughs) you actually want to have absolute knowledge about what the transactions are and what they do. And and so very unlike Ethereum, uh, Factum is designed to be uh, very single purpose, very, create that immutable data layer. Now I've zoomed all the way from <laughs> who I am and what I do um, into what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But it all perfect. builds on itself. So so kind of one question to bring us back a little bit almost is, I know that you kind of hit, hit on it just a little bit, but you graduated from pro- probably one of the best colleges, uh, Texas A&M. But, of course. But besides, sure. besides, um
2: But you, listen, I
0: do support you know, all these other
2: universities because not everyone can get to oh, a But now at 80,000 students,
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, they're, yeah. they're making it more and more available to people. That Absolutely, do. and so whenever you graduated from there, can you bring us back to that of, how was it actually starting out that first business? What hardships did you really go through?
2: Oh, well, I, I think I was too young and stupid to realize how hard it was. Uh, I, I went to texas a and m as a graduate student i actually got my undergrad in Louisiana um, at the dawn of time uh, just after they invented the chisel <laughs> so, and and uh, i went to a and m and i got involved in compilers interpreters and how you write code and what code means you know mm-hmm. from the from the processor up um, and, and how you build abstractions so um i i got into that uh part of uh, our work, mine and some of the other graduate students I was working with, like and whatnot, our work um, piqued the interest of some mathematicians who thought we should apply it to the digital printing revolution that was uh, heating up in the mid-'80s to late-'80s. And that's when I got into writing PostScript. I did a lot as a consultant for QMS, which was a big printer company back in the day. And then uh, that gradually built up into actually writing the interpreter for a company called Printware out in Minnesota and uh, got me into the digital printing revolution. Mm -hmm. So it it kind of, the company I started kind of grew up from the work I was doing as a graduate student and then as I uh, worked with professors. Mm -hmm. By the way, professors aren't necessarily the they're they're really great at starting the entrepreneurial mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily the greatest for um, incubating it and taking it to the next level. I so so that was a that. real big
1: problem for me was yeah.
2: making that transition. That's what happened. And what,
1: what 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 would you say you learned? I mean, obviously now you made it, you the CEO and everything. What would what would you say is like what got you there? You mentioned like professors don't really like. What would you do differently now? Like to well, get Well, remember that you you you. Engineering
2: is not the only thing Mm -hmm. so you have to have business people you have to have the finance people you have to have the marketing people What we did uh, coming out of graduate school was we collected a lot of engineering talent So we were very heavy engineering talent and and didn't know so much about Mm -hmm. some of these other things Um, I think coming at this point coming into factum we always had a real holistic view that you had to have The business people you had to have the marketing people you had to have the engineers you had to have the visionaries you have to have the guys that you know just plod along Mm -hmm. and and build the infrastructure that you need so recognizing that everybody contributes to your project Mm -hmm. is probably one of the hardest lessons to learn Mm -hmm. because when you're ceo and you have an engineering background you almost naturally think it's all about engineering Mm -hmm. but if i were a business guy it's naturally all about business if I was a marketing guy. Recognize your limitations, recognize
0: the need for everyone. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's very interesting actually. And so you've kind of already almost transitioned into our next question actually is, what you're doing right now, you're working with some very, very complicated things. Can you actually give us a little bit of a rundown of, for maybe those who don't know a whole lot about cryptocurrency, kind of what it is that you're doing? Well, wow, that's also
2: a broad, broad um, mm-hmm. question, because uh, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, we, we have a project that we're working on that's a medical wallet. The idea is to make sure that medical records are available to an individual, perhaps in Africa, um, regardless of which clinic they go to, regardless mm-hmm. of who's delivering the, um, health, and human, the health services. Because health services are chaotic in, in Africa mm. uh, different NGOs, different disaster relief organizations, different government programs. and so and, and yet with an unsophisticated population making sure they have control of their medical records because some of them suffer from diseases that have a lot of social Stigma attached to them. Yeah. and so you want them treated, but you want to protect them You yeah. want to make sure their records are available, but not available to anybody So that that's something that we've been able to, to build on the really? blockchain and it's a very interesting project Another one is the department Department of Homeland Security. Ooh. They want to build a wall. Okay <laughs> well, all right. So they can't build a wall, but they have sensors along the border to pick up a uh, weapons, smugglers, uh, human traffickers. Uh, immigration is what you hear about a lot, but a lot of drugs coming over. A lot of yeah. things we really want to stop, and those sensor, and, and those parties, believe it or not, are smart and sophisticated and have money. Therefore, they can compromise mm-hmm. uh, these devices. When you do catch them, they, they claim all the, the evidence has been manufactured, yeah. it's been modified. So you can use the blockchain to secure the devices to ensure that it's your devices you're monitoring, not somebody spoofing them. Yeah, and then you can prove what data you collected within a time frame. <clears throat> prove you haven't modified it; therefore, it's not manufactured. Exactly. Prove that you have the complete set. That that this is all the data you collected, not more, not less. Mm-hmm. And prove um, the timeline. You know, because you've actually gone on record where the devices are before the incident. How would how would I ever be able to? pretend yeah. that I put a device somewhere, if I went on record on the blockchain long before the person uh, mm-hmm. crossed the border, you know, with their bazooka whatever they you know, had, to, yeah, to, yeah, to, whatever, to, whatever they to had to blow up the, <laughs> elementary schools. <right? laughs> yeah. And so, if you take the timeline off the table in the legal process, you've cut down your costs, and oh, you put wow. the bad guys in prison, and you've reduced the the chances for mistakes and errors. Of, yeah. yeah. yeah Promoting safety, obviously. Yeah.
1: So it sounds like all that is really, like, problem solving. Mm-hmm. How, so for, like, our audience, like, interviewing inspiration, obviously, like, for everyone, problem solving is key. So can you give us, like, how do you even come with, like, how do you do that? What would be the best way? I how do you to think do about it? this? No, no, what would be, like, the best way to, like, you don't know the solution, so what are your steps to finding the solution? Well, a lot of the things that we do, because we're a blockchain mm-hmm. company,
2: We want to know where do you have risk? Where do you need to build trust? Um, So, uh, for example, in, uh, uh, I don't know, a business process in China that crosses jurisdictions to the US and you want to make sure that the parts are genuine, for example, then you can use the blockchain to secure the supply chain that each party is doing their stuff. And, and basically, because there's a blockchain, you can't split off the legitimate par- products to someone else without losing the legitimacy on the so blockchain. So you've reduced their value unless you uh, follow the rules. And, and, and by the way, mm-hmm. look at North Korea. I'm going to just look at North Korea. Mm-hmm. They were accused um, early this year, in 2018, of mining $200 million worth of Bitcoin. And that's really bad. Okay, North Korea is making money on Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah. But uh, let me point out, they did it according to the rules. They followed all the rules. Now, the only people enforcing the rules are the people running some software developed by some guys, you know, unwashed crypto guys. Not, there's no armies or agreements or treaties. There's, there's no international organizations that are enforcing how you do Bitcoin. Exactly. In 2017, they started counterfeiting the new hundred-dollar bill, and these new hundred-dollar bills are, are, um, being accepted as legitimate because they're very hard to detect as being counterfeit. But the hundred-dollar bill is backed by armies and treaties and organizations, and they they risk sanctions and all these other things. So how is it that they fail to follow rules with those that many resources dedicated to ensure rules are followed, versus something where the only thing that ensures that you follow the rules is math. Exactly. Just a handful well, of guys with a the formula. <laughs> if any, they, they wrote it into the code, and the code says if they try to cheat, we're going to throw away their work. And it's proof of work, right? Mm-hmm. They spend a lot of ex, uh, 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 um, resources to build blocks. If those blocks just get thrown away by the first piece of software that reads it and says, oh this isn't valid, throws it away, they lose their investment. Mm -hmm. So it's all about game theory, it's all about math. Where we can apply the same kind of technology to ensure that legal processes are correct, Mm -hmm. we make the world better for people. Where we can apply this technology to ensure that um, business processes are correct, Mm -hmm. we make that better for business and the economy. Where we create systems that allow the developing world to um, transact in the world at large, at, on a level playing field, mm-hmm. we make the world more just. And we unlock potential everywhere. The blockchain has the potential of radically changing the entire world. That's, and that's
1: why we're doing yeah, it. That, that's that's I mean, actually absolutely incredible. Changing the future,
0: changing the world. And so with everything that you're, with your company, everything that you do is very fast-paced. It's always evolving. It's, it's very, very complicated what you're doing, that not anyone can just walk in and do it. So how do you actually find the people that, whenever you see someone, you look at them and say, that's someone who I'm going to have on my team. Well, what traits do you look for? Oh, well, I,
2: Obviously, uh, if we're talking about marketing, we're looking for people that market business, business, finance, finance. Keep in mind, it's not just about the programmers, though the programmers really are important. Um, I think a lot of people have the ability to participate in this new blockchain um, society. I think pretty much everybody has the opportunity because it's not just a one-faceted thing. It's a many, many faceted thing. So, when I I think if, if there's one attribute that I look for in a person to participate with my efforts, is this an honest person? Do they have a dedication to the ideal? And do they have a real passion for the thing they're talented in? If they have that passion for their talent, there is a facet where they can contribute. Yeah. And and our goal is to have the resources to collect these passionate, idealistic, exactly, capable people within their within their field, and to and to create those opportunities for
0: everybody. Absolutely. And how do you actually find? Or is it just something mm-hmm. about them that you really just you know that they're passionate? they just can't stop talking about it? Or how, how do you? I I think see it's the drive. I think it's all over the place.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, there even that there are the. They're the, it's the old joke. How do you recognize an extroverted mathematician? He's the guy who talks to your <laughs> shoes, not his, yes. right? So not everyone is that bubbly, passionate person that can't stop talking. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's just really hard. I, I wish I could give you yeah. a, a
1: magic bullet, I can't. But I do think that everybody has an opportunity to contribute. Awesome. I do wanted to go back real quick to like the beginning of your conversation. I think it's gonna help you out a lot is you did mention to like start a business I mean that's the goal for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. what you did mention resources but what would you say are the top resources like are you mean capital or like, what would you say would be key things that you must have to create that business? Well
2: you, you you have to have an idea. you have to have some sort of compelling direction uh, without the compelling direction uh, goal ideal than then you just have a desire to be there. Um, for instance, a, some people have a real desire to lead, but they don't really care where they're leading people to. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm afraid that's directionless. I, I think you have to have a, a goal as your fundamental yeah. thing to start a business. And and you have to be able to find, you, you're, you, you ask resources versus capital, what am I talking about? I, I, I do believe there are places where you find those individuals, those are your resources and, and they have the ability to glom on and push your idea forward. Um, occasionally it takes capital uh, first. I can't say there's a one way this happens, whether you get the capital first or you get the people first. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have the presentation. You have to have the ability to be compelling um, to both the, like if I'm trying to recruit you. And you know, I don't have the right message, I don't get you, exactly. even if you would be the key to make us successful. So it's just all over yeah. the place. All I, over I, the I, I, I really um, I wish I could say there was a magic bullet, but I don't think there is.
0: Yeah. Yeah, those are great tips. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And so unfortunately, we do only have time for one more question. Okay. And for that, you graduated from a and m some number of years ago. Nineteen eighty six. Nineteen eighty six. Yes. So, if you were graduating today from AM or from any university in this mm-hmm. great United States, what would you, what would you say is very very important for them to either focus on or is a great opportunity for someone to really get started at? Well, I, I will tell you this. Mm-hmm. This is one of the
2: things that I do look for in in, in a resume or when I'm talking to somebody Did they engage? In their field of focus, in their in their in their um, uh, central talent, did they engage in it on their own? Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, you're an engineer. If all the engineering you did was just what was assigned to you in class, I don't. I mean, even if you made A's on everything, but that's all you did, then I am a little worried. Yeah. You know, because the real passion is when I see it in your real in your real life. You know beyond just what was assigned now we have a guy here that's working with me he, he actually came from my first company um, software construction um, his name's clay douglas and when he was a single uh, guy in school uh, he made a lot of money uh, tutoring people in my classes because i would assign labs and they wouldn't know how to do that and, and anyway he made a lot of money on me before he ever met me directly but at a party i i, I had the opportunity to see his bedroom in, the, in the, the apartment he's sharing it with a bunch of guys, and the entire floor was covered in electronics. His desk was covered in electronics. He had a bunk bed that he had to like tiptoe to over all the projects he was engaged in. I said
1: that was a guy I wanted to work with, and I've nice been
2: working like with me with him my entire career. So
1: there you go. A passion is a huge takeaway I noticed on there. Yeah. Uh, also. Well, that's it for our interview for today. Mr. Snow, thank you so much. I hope Interview Inspiration definitely gets something out of that for sure. Uh, We'll see you next week, and we appreciate it again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) From everyone here at Interviewing Inspiration, we'd like to say thank you for all of our listeners and all of the people who have supported us. We'd also like to say thank you for the people in Interviewing Inspiration who has made this possible. Parsha Adani, our co-owner and producer. Matthew Ragawi, the head of business development and operations. Aveen Pasolar, the creative director, Matthew Martinez, the business and technical advisor. We'd also like to give a special thank you to Mark LaCour for helping us get started up. He's actually got some podcasts of his own. Go check them out. They're about oil and gas, and they're actually really great. In addition, Cameron Turin, the creator of our music for this podcast, and everyone who has come on the show to be interviewed and share their knowledge. Thank you.